In season six, episode 15 of The Sopranos, Tony Soprano describes remember when as the lowest form of conversation. The remark is a criticism of nostalgia and people's need to dwell on the past. And Tony says it's to get under the skin of Polly, whose stories are always strolls down memory lane. I'm hoping that you won't think this episode of the podcast is a remember when conversation. The year is wrapping up, and here at Medusa, we decided to revisit some of the stories published in 2021 that we think anybody following Russia in English language reporting should have read. On this show, we usually feature Medusa's own special reporting, but in the spirit of the holidays, today's episode is devoted to work by our colleagues at other outlets. So let's review some of 2021's most important, best researched, and beautifully written articles. This is not an exhaustive list, of course, but here are nine stories published in the English language about Russia that are worth remembering in 2022 and the years to come. Finally, to cap off this retrospective, we'll also sit down with historian Sean Guillory of the SRB podcast for his list of five academic books on Russia and the Soviet Union that resonated best with him in 2021. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Hello there, you're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. On this week's show, we're looking back at some of the journalism and scholarly work in 2021 that constitutes significant contributions to our knowledge about Russia. These articles feature incredible fieldwork, remarkable characters, insights into how power works in Russia, and a lot more. Across the board, these are compelling stories that you might have missed over the year, so let's go down this list recalling what these stories were about and how they contributed to our knowledge of Russia, past and present. We'll also speak to some of the authors before sitting down with Sean Guillory to hear his five favorite Russia books from academia in 2021. This is going to be a long show. It was a long year, after all. So just check the timestamps in the episode's description if you'd like to skip to certain segments. A Black Communist Disappearance in Stalin's Russia. What happened to Lovett Ford Whiteman, the only known African-American to die in the Gulag? By Joshua Yaffa, published on October 18th, 2021 in The New Yorker. Yaffa tells the story of the only Black American recorded to have died in the Gulag. A committed Marxist who discovered the ideology in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, Lovett Ford Whiteman, spent years trying to radicalize African-Americans to the cause of communism, seeing it as a road to liberation for his people. In the U.S., the appeal of communism for many immigrants and ethnic minorities was obvious. Few other political philosophies at the time held out the possibility of full equality, writes Yaffa. 
After attending the Fifth World Congress of the Communist International in Moscow, just months after Lenin's death, Fort Whiteman returned to Chicago and established a forum hoping to recruit more black people to the cause. The organization stumbled, however, and archival documents show that the Communist Party blamed Fort Whiteman for creating a group that was almost completely isolated from the basic masses of the Negro people. That's a quote. When it came to mobilizing black people, Fort Whiteman now found himself aligned with the likes of Nikolai Bukharin, who thought that communism could only win over black people after they migrated north from the American South and became urban proletariat. This put him in opposition to Joseph Stalin, not a good place to be, on what common turn ideologues called the Negro question. After relocating permanently to the USSR, Fort Whiteman thrived socially but gradually made the wrong enemies, thanks to some personal politics that alienated other black communists in Moscow, which led some fellow civil rights leaders to move against him, and thanks to a lifelong emphasis on color consciousness, wherein he argued, the Negroes are not discriminated against as a class, but as a race. This latter point is crucial because it was criticism of the Communist Party itself. As early as 1924, Fort Whiteman described communist race blindness as a peculiar psychological problem. As a result of his ideas on the roles of race and class in the perpetuation of inequality, communist officials came to see Fort Whiteman as someone with a petty bourgeois nationalist point of view. Yaffa writes that Fort Whiteman lived in Moscow and enjoyed the kind of spirited intellectual and social life that would have been impossible in the land of his birth. Right up until the moment he was summoned to the NKVD's headquarters in the spring of 1936. Within a few days, he'd been forced into exile within the USSR. In August 1938, he was convicted of crimes including anti-Soviet agitation, slandering the party, and even cultivating exiles around himself while instilling a counter-revolutionary spirit. Within a few months, he died in the Far East at a labor camp, the only African-American known to have died in the Gulag. But in his final moments, writes Yaffa, that distinction made little difference. He was buried in a mass grave with thousands of fellow inmates who met the same fate. There was excellent reporting this year on how the climate crisis affects Russia, where you often find contradictory attitudes about human-caused global warming. On the one hand, there's a lot of land to defrost in Russia, and that could conceivably be used for new purposes. And the country itself has relatively few coastal cities at risk of rising oceans. On the other hand, there's already a lot built on Russia's melting permafrost, including an enormous part of its vital resource extraction industry. That's the subject of climate change is melting Russia's permafrost and challenging its oil economy by Ann Simmons and Georgi Kanchev, published on October 5th, 2021 in the Wall Street Journal. For this story, the journal went to Yakutsk, the coldest, constantly inhabited city in the world, where the temperatures dropped to 40 degrees below zero Fahrenheit for a quarter of the year, a season. Simmons and Kanchev spoke to locals who have been waiting more than a decade for help with housing that is crumbling as the ground beneath their homes goes soft. Ten years ago, Yakutsk officials inspected the city's 2,000 apartment buildings, and fewer than three dozen were deemed safe. When it comes to erecting new houses in Yakutsk, building on piles sunk 26 feet into the frozen ground was good enough until recently. Today, however, construction crews must go as deep as 40 feet to be safe. When it comes to Russia's melting permafrost, the damage to residential buildings is significant, but the truly national stakes are how it threatens the oil and gas industry. Two-thirds of the country sits on permafrost, and thawing could affect more than a fifth 
of Russia's oil and gas infrastructure. A government minister said in May that 40% of building and infrastructure facilities in these areas is already damaged. Simmons and Konchev also reported that the dangers of melting permafrost might harm Russia's credit profile given that a fifth of the nation's GDP comes from the oil and gas sector, and fuel and energy products comprise most Russian exports. Over the past 50 years, moreover, Russia's average temperature has risen 2.5 times faster than the global pace. In fact, thawing permafrost is both the result of global warming and one of its causes, insofar as softening soil emits greenhouse gases, say Simmons and Konchev. The authorities got a very clear wake-up call last year, also, during the spring of 2020, when thawing permafrost damaged the post supporting a large diesel fuel storage tank in the polar Arctic, leading to the region's biggest ever oil spill. The damaged fuel tank leaked more than 20,000 tons of fuel. Moscow's evolving attitudes about the climate crisis were at the center of another report featured on today's podcast. On a Pacific Island, Russia tests its battle plan for climate change by Anton Trayanovsky, published on October 19, 2021 in the New York Times. This article begins with an incredible first sentence. The clean energy generated by the new wind park will go toward mining more coal. Trayanovsky says economics is largely what's driven Vladimir Putin's remarkable reversal on the climate crisis. And the change in tone from Russia's president has indeed been remarkable. Just three years ago, Putin said that cosmic changes, shifts of some kind in the galaxy that are invisible to us, could be the reason for global warming. In the last year, however, events like the oil spill in the polar Arctic, caused by thawing permafrost, and a series of devastating wildfires in Siberia, have prompted a cosmic change in the Kremlin's own rhetoric. But questions remain about the sincerity of Russia's new pledge to go carbon neutral by 2060. And Trayanovsky spoke to experts who expressed skepticism about the Kremlin's plans to get there, mainly because the plans call for continued investments in producing more oil, gas, and coal. There are additional doubts because Russia's carbon neutrality plans rely, on the one hand, on reducing forest fires and changing forestry practices so more trees capture more CO2. But the Kremlin is also changing how it calculates that absorption. Environmentalists told Trayanovsky that the mathematical models here are not based on any reliable data or studies. Gambling on Russia's forests could be especially risky also, given the damage the climate crisis has already inflicted on the country's fragile ecosystems through storms, insects, and other phenomena connected to global warming. Besides saving the economy and keeping people's homes from collapsing, writes Trayanovsky, Russia has other major incentives to take the climate crisis seriously, such as fostering a positive image of Russia in the world and stimulating the development of foreign trade relationships, two outcomes that might neutralize some of Moscow's more persistent diplomatic and economic problems in the West. On Sakhalin Island, meanwhile, the current plan is to go carbon neutral very soon, by 2025. The tools for achieving this include emissions trading, hydrogen power, renewable energy plants, and new carbon sinks. Today, this stuff exists mainly on paper, but a large wind farm is already in development in the region, albeit to power the East Mining Company's open-pit coal mining operations. It's totally surreal, a Greenpeace representative told Trenovsky, adding, wind turbines are supposed to replace fossil fuels rather than support them. While we're discussing Russia's oil business, there's one article published this year that stands out for its depth of local reporting, 
and larger insights into how oil shapes much of the corruption in Russia's law enforcement. The Great Russian Oil Heist, Criminals, Lawmen, and the Quest for Liquid Loot, by Sergei Khasov-Kasya, published on March 22, 2021, by RFERL. This report focuses on the energy-rich Kanti-Masi Autonomous District in western Siberia, but the oil theft found here is apparently common in other parts of the country. Using illegal taps and hoses, organized crime groups siphon off untold amounts of oil in the region, says Hasev Kasya. For the story, he interviewed current and former police, private security contractors, security specialists at oil companies, and people close to criminal groups. And he also obtained access to a trove of documents linked to a local ecologist and a former police chief who were slapped with felony charges after they presented evidence of police and federal security service involvement in some of these oil theft schemes. Oil in Russia is stolen at every stage from extraction to refining, sources told House of Kasia, adding that law enforcement officers protect this theft for a share of the profits, which leads to a mix of lax punishment for those caught stealing and infighting among the police over access to this money that allows some officials to face prosecution. The reports we discussed from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times explained how the climate crisis affects resource extraction industries in Russia. Illegally tapping oil pipelines also aggravates Russia's ecological problems, insofar as it creates more opportunities for spills, while the thieves responsible have little motivation to clean up, says Hasev Kasia. In addition to the environmental damage, it's hard to judge how much money is lost in these thefts, but state-owned investment bank VTB Capital estimated in 2013 that oil companies were losing as much as $3.5 billion annually. Because the stolen oil is purchased and then resold by shell companies, tax evasion also cost the federal government as much as $1.2 billion in lost annual tax revenue. Hasev Kasia offers several anecdotes describing how this police corruption plays out in practice. For example, a source at a private security firm says an FSB officer intervened after the firm's guards and local traffic police stopped a tanker truck with suspicious documents that was apparently carrying stolen oil. The officer told the guards and the police to stand down and let the truck through. The FSB agent was supposedly convicted later of involvement in oil theft, but a source with links to organized crime in the region told Hasev Kasia that this was merely retribution for allegedly pocketing some of the money meant for others in the scheme and for implicating some of his co-conspirators in testimony to state investigators. Hasev Kasia also recalls how a local environmental activist was assaulted by masked men and at least one FSB officer while the activist group of volunteers was dismantling abandoned oil pipelines for scrap. After that activist traveled to Moscow to hand-deliver evidence of widespread oil theft in the Hanti-Masi region, he was charged with stealing pipelines and reportedly threatened with torture. Some of Hasev Kasia's report is based on information collected by Edward Schmonen, a local journalist who released a documentary film in November 2016 on his own TV channel, where he implicated police officers and several FSB agents in the illicit oil business. Not long thereafter, Schmonen was arrested on criminal charges including libel, blackmail, and distributing pornography, of all things. In May 2021, after RFERL published Hasev Kasia's article, a court sentenced Schmonen to eight years in prison. Over the years, the investigative team at Bellingcat has released several major reports about the clandestine activities of Russia's intelligence community. 
When Alexei Navalny returned to Russia at the beginning of this year, his homecoming was just weeks after revelations from Bellingcat that implicated the Federal Security Service in Navalny's poisoning. That story broke in December 2020, so it's not journalism for this year's list, but Bellingcat dropped an entirely different bombshell just last month in November. Inside Wagnergate, Ukraine's brazen sting operation to snare Russian mercenaries. By Christo Grozev, with contributions from Eric Toller, Peter Van Huys, and Jordan Solov. Published on November 17th, 2021, by Bellingcat. This story was the result of a year-long investigation by Bellingcat and The Insider, which established that Ukraine's military intelligence service and the counterintelligence department of Ukraine's domestic intelligence agency stage a false flag recruitment of mercenaries suspected of committing serious crimes while fighting for Russia-supported separatists in the Donbass. Ukraine's secret operation mostly targeted men who formerly fought with the Wagner Group, a private military contractor that allegedly operates as Russia's exclusive proxy army. The scheme began as early as 2018 as a typical intelligence-gathering campaign, but morphed into an opportunistic sting operation by early 2020, before imploding catastrophically in July 2020, when the Ukrainian presidency reportedly delayed the operation's final stage to protect a ceasefire agreement with Moscow. By the time the operation was underway, the goal had become capturing more than two dozen mercenaries who'd fought in eastern Ukraine, a plan that would have required calling in a bomb threat to force down the plane carrying these men from Belarus to Turkey. To obtain arrest warrants and ensure the government's deniability once the mercenaries were in custody, this also meant a sophisticated ruse with an anonymous whistleblower. Incidentally, Ukraine's plan closely parallels what the Belarusian authorities actually did less than a year later, in May 2021, when they used a fake bomb threat to force down an aircraft carrying activist Roman Protasevich. Ukraine's operation failed ultimately, but the details are fascinating. Bellingcat's investigation relies on dozens of interviews, including conversations with both Russian mercenaries who fell for the ploy and former Ukrainian intelligence agents who helped put it together. To validate what these people said, researchers cross-checked hundreds of electronic files and audio recordings from the false flag recruitment process provided to Bellingcat by suspended Ukrainian intelligence operatives. Bellingcat also studied other documents and audio files leaked to the media, as well as the findings of an inquest committee in the Ukrainian parliament. To bait mercenaries into sharing evidence and possibly confessions of crimes committed in Ukraine, says Bellingcat, intelligence agents in Kiev built a cover story on three main components, a credible recruiting entity, a plausible international assignment, and a convincing project handler, presumably from Russia's secret services. For a recruiting entity, Ukrainian operatives co-opted a real but disused private military contractor established in St. Petersburg in 2012. The assignment would be guarding Rosneft oil installations in the Middle East, later changed to Venezuela. And a special operations operative with actual combat experience volunteered to be the fake recruiter, but Bellingcat was never able to interview this person. After some initial struggles, the phony job opportunity attracted hundreds of pages of detailed, handwritten confessions describing applicants' roles in the Donbass War, the Middle East, and Africa, along with names of commanding officers and photos of medals issued by the Kremlin. These materials contained direct admissions and details of how Russia's hybrid war in Ukraine had developed, says Bellingcat, and showed that mercenaries had arrived in the Donbass both under the cover of rebels and in direct deployments with their regular Russian army units. Just as the operation's active phase was beginning, however, the Zelensky administration ordered a delay in the mercenaries' departure from Belarus to Turkey, 
postponing the plan to capture their plane as it flew over Ukraine, because President Zelensky wanted to protect a ceasefire agreement reached just a day earlier with Russia and Russia-supported separatists in the Donbass. When a Belarusian special forces team raided the mercenaries' hotel rooms outside of Minsk at 4.30 a.m. on July 29, 2020, however, Ukraine's grand plan collapsed in an instant. After a couple of weeks of oscillation amid opposition protests that looked like they might topple his regime, Alexander Lukashenko later released the arrested men back to Russia, putting them beyond Kiev's reach once more. There's been a lot written about Alexei Navalny in the past two years, since he was poisoned, nearly assassinated, and then dramatically arrested upon his return to Russia after recuperating in Germany. In July this year, the American magazines The New Yorker and Vanity Fair published profiles of two women who have been vital in Navalny's movement, Lyubov Sobol and Navalny's own wife, Yulia Navalnaya. The reports offer a glimpse of life under enormous political pressure and police scrutiny, featuring compelling family dramas. Both stories end in separation, but we'll leave it to you to decide which is the more tragic of the two. Let's start with the former. Dubov Sobel's Hope for Russia by Masha Gessen, published on July 19, 2021 in The New Yorker. Two developments since Masha Gessen profiled Dubov Sobel make the story even more compelling. First, Sobel, the only one of the half-dozen people who run Navalny's projects, who is neither under arrest nor living in exile, is now wanted by police in Russia and living in exile. And two, Sobel, the activist wife who described her marriage to a scholar as a normal and sane kind of symbiosis, is now divorced. Read Gessen's story from July, and you won't be surprised to hear this. I am by nature a fanatic, Sobel told Gessen earlier this year, arguing that her faith in justice was immune to disillusionment. She joined the Navalny movement in its infancy, in 2011, before she even finished law school accepting a salary that was well below what her fellow students earned working for Western consulting companies. Gessen describes Sobel's appeal as anti-charismatic charisma and her ideology as the defiant politics of radical normalcy. A nerd, Gessen clarifies. Willing to devote herself to the endless study of procurement databases, Sobel became the first lawyer for Navalny's new political organization. Spending all of her time logging evidence of corruption and drafting lawsuits to challenge some of the most dubious business transactions by state corporations. Her first marriage fell apart after a few months. In 2012, after a winter of euphoric protests and a year of dating, Sobel married again, but this match too 
had problems that Gessen could spot almost a decade later. It's hard to imagine two people who understand the world and themselves in it more differently than Sergei Mokhov and Lyubov Sobol, wrote Gessen. In October 2016, Navalny's team of researchers began its war with the catering magnate Evgeny Prigozhin, who reportedly owns the Wagner private military contractor at the center of Bellingcat's November 2021 report. Team Navalny's work on Prigozhin drew from Lyubov Sobol's discovery of hundreds of government contracts awarded to unknown, brand new firms that she connected to the tycoon. The deals, mostly in the food business, but expanding into military procurement and the media, were worth more than a billion dollars, Sobol estimated. As he's done countless times since, Prigozhin denied any links to these companies and any involvement in wrongdoing. A month later, a man jumped Sobol's husband outside of their home and injected him in the hip with something that knocked him out. Doctors think it was a powerful neuroleptic or maybe a muscle relaxant. Journalist at Nove Gazeta later identified Sergei Mokhov's assailant as a pharmacist in his 30s who died mysteriously six months after the attack. The newspaper also found an accomplice and linked the pair to the murder of an opposition blogger in Perm. The accomplice worked for Yevgeny Prigozhin. Mokhov and Sobol drew on contradictory conclusions from this experience, writes Gessen. He lost all faith that there'd ever be justice in Russia, while she redoubled her efforts to build the wonderful Russia of the future. In the next few months, Navalny debuted a popular YouTube channel, a media outlet designed to break the team's cycle of telling the same story to the same people over and over. Surprising some on the team, including Sobel herself, Navalny asked her to lead the channel's morning news analysis program. He wanted the nerd on camera. In 2018, Sobel led the Anti-Corruption Foundation's exposure of a dysentery outbreak in several public preschools in Moscow. She ultimately scored a rare legal victory, winning monetary compensation for the families affected by the contaminated catering, which she connected to Prigozhin's business empire. He won in court too, however, and damages awarded in multiple defamation rulings eventually made it impossible for Sobel to keep her own income. As a result, she ended up formally quitting her job with Navalny and became an unpaid volunteer. Over the years, Sobel also mounted several campaigns for elected office. She never won, but in 2019, her run for the Moscow City Council helped mobilize major opposition protests when officials rejected her candidacy and the candidacy of other independent politicians on dodgy grounds. A year ago, Sobel committed an act of trespassing that would eventually lead to her fleeing the country, months after Gessen's profile was published. On December 21, 2020, she went to the apartment building of Konstantin Kudratsev, an alleged member of the FSB's supposed team of poisoners whom Bellingcat identified as Navalny's attempted assassins. She wanted to interview him about his supposed role in the poisoning. The police arrested her at the scene. I asked Sobel why she was still in Russia, Gessen says in the conclusion of her story. It is her home and fleeing the country would not make her safe, Gessen then explains. My family friend Prigozhin will catch up with me, Sobel told her, reeling off a list of assassinations that Russia has allegedly carried out abroad. But abroad is exactly where Sobel ended up. On August 8th, she announced that she had divorced. That same day, the Russian media reported that she'd left the country. Russian law enforcement issued an arrest warrant for her in October. Earlier this month, in December... A Moscow court changed her probation sentence in the trespassing case to imprisonment. If she returns to Russia now, she'll likely join Navalny behind bars.
The other profile published this year about a prominent woman in the Navalny movement came out just a few days before Gessen's article. These bastards will never see our tears. How Yulia Navalnaya became Russia's real first lady. By Julia Yoffa. Published on July 8th, 2021 in Vanity Fair. And this is the happy moment in the show when we pivot from my summaries of top reporting in 2021 to conversations with the journalists who are actually responsible for this excellent work. The first thing I asked Julia Yoffe about her Navalnaya profile was about the role of sexism in Russia's opposition, past and present. I think it's really complicated because, A, sexism looks different in different places, and the same way that feminism looks different in America than it does in Russia, and Russia has its own uh, very rich history and a very different history of a feminist tradition. And I guess you could say it's sexist, or you could say it's just politics in the way that the leaders of Russia either used or didn't use their wives as political tools. So going back to Lenin and his wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, who was an accomplished revolutionary in her own right, and she was more of the helpmeet model. She was his comrade in arms. They, they got married because they asked to be exiled together into Siberia. And they worked together on various translations and texts. And she put out, there was a lot of writing that she did, and she contributed a lot to the kind of reform of education that the Soviet Union undertook. She never took her husband's last name, for example. And then you, and then there's this immediate retrenchment with Stalin, who hides his wife, and she doesn't particularly want to be seen as his wife. And then you go to Putin, and it's the same, and it's like hiding again. And I think Navalny is, again, this counterpoint where you have Yulia, who on one hand is very traditional. She took her husband's name. She's never worked since her first child was born. You know, she was very much about the home front and taking the kids to school and to clubs and classes and like after school activities and packing lunches. But I think as many people pointed out to me, when you're doing that and you're the wife, the bespechewish thil, you're like creating, you're responsible for the home front of Putin's main enemy who always has a target on his back, that in and of itself is a political role. And even though she herself says she is not political, she doesn't want to do politics, she doesn't want to be like Tikhanovskaya, she doesn't want to run for anything. She's The organization has always been very careful about keeping a line between Yulia and the work stuff, the office stuff. At the same time, she is Navalny's editor-in-chief. She reads everything before it's, you know, posted. He consults her on matters of personnel in this way. She's very much like Raisa Gorbachev, who was also kind of head of HR, informal head of HR for Gorbachev. And again, like, even though it's informal and it's very traditional, it's also ex- incredibly political. Some of this is getting at one of the, like, the things about Navalny that comes through in the profile is that in terms of her thinking about the political movement that, you know, her husband runs or that she's involved in and about like the nature of politics in Russia, there's this constant interplay between her pragmatism and her idealism. And like the the moment it comes to a head in the story, I thought, was when you're recounting how Grozov is asking her, you're talking to her about, you know, well, there's there's two moments, I guess. One, when when he, he asks her if she would 
is it get revenge on on one of the poisoners or if she would erase him from existence or something like that or so they're sitting it's uh a few months after her husband's been poisoned and nearly killed and she's seen him writhing in a coma while he while the toxins are working she's seen him in a coma she's seen him try to rip all the cords out when he's coming out of the coma he she's been through his not remembering who she is or who their kids are she's been through all of this harrowing shit and they're done investigating and i have to say what what didn't make it into the piece is that the famous call where grozev and uh, navalny call basically prank call one of the main poisoners and pretend to be his boss they did it and Christo told me they were like they were in such disbelief and like the rush of adrenaline was so strong that they were just like powered through it. And then they ended the call and they were like, what the fuck just happened? And they sat and they, they let a little time pass and they sat and listened to it again. And then Yulia came into the office a few hours later once it was like normal daylight hours and they listened to it with her. So she hears this guy talk about before any of us heard it. This guy talk about how he failed to kill her husband. And basically a day or two later, they're having this goodbye dinner and all these guys' pictures are up on the wall. And Christo go, you know, poses a hypothetical and he goes around the room and he says, you know, if you could go back in time and erase this person from history, either like smother him in the crib or like, I don't know. Terminator style, kill his mom. Put a condom, a condom on his dad. And everybody... That's a lot nicer than smothering a baby. This is the counterpoint in the abortion debate. Sorry, just birth control. Good. Anyway. Let's bring it all in. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, so they're going around the table. So they're going around the table and Christo makes everybody answer. And then it gets to Yulia. It hasn't gotten to Alexia yet, but it gets to Yulia. Everybody says yes. Everybody says, absolutely, I would go back in time and erase this person from history. This motherfucker who tried to kill Alexia Navalny. And then it gets to Yulia, and she says, no, I wouldn't. And Christo's shocked by this, and he says, why the hell not? And she says, because I'm a Christian. And I don't believe in harming anybody. Is religion a particularly important part of their lives? Because that answer is like, must be, they must be devout. Alexei also said, then, also said, no, he wouldn't for the same reasons, but... When I first wrote about Alexei uh, 11 years ago, he made a big deal out of it. And he, I remember we drove. At Faith. Faith, yeah. And we drove from, he drove me from his office to their apartment, which was then in Marina, so I could meet Yulia and the kids. And as we were driving, every time we passed a church, and as you know, in Moscow, there's a ton of churches. Every time we passed a church, he would cross himself three times and bow his head and i don't know if he was doing that for me or for for real but from everything i've heard they're quite devout in the sense of i don't know if they keep every fast or whatever or how often they go to church but they seem to be pretty devout spiritually so there's that moment certainly and then there's the other one when she's talking when grozev is talking to her about navalny going back and maybe they'll let him go, you know, et cetera. And she's like, oh, no, 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 They're, his, he's going away for a while. But at the same time, she says, of course, he has to go back. Yeah, he'll, he has to go back. And she's she seems to believe genuinely that this is all for something. This is And not just the distant future, but like we're part of the coming. She doesn't use the word revolution doesn't come up in the story, but kind of is implied <laughs> if he's going to be the president. Right. 
And I mean, in some ways, now that you're asking me these questions back to back, it strikes me as Christian too, right? That he has to undergo these trials, right? He has to bear this cross to get where he has to go, where he's destined to go. I think for people who are outside that belief system, that is the, you know, Navalny organization. I think a lot of their detractors say that it's a cult and that they have this like cultish, slavish following of Navalny. But I think it's, I feel like these people have never been on an American campaign. It's very similar, you know, it's like a really stressful thing. You're getting paid shit. You're not sleeping. You're not ever home. You're eating shit. You're gaining weight. You're like, you never see anybody. You're working basically. If you're awake, you're working and about 20 hours a day. And the only reason you would do this is if you believe in this candidate and you believe that they can bring about change and the candidate couldn't win without these people. So is it cultish? Maybe, but it exists in the U.S. too, which I think for a while at least was Navalny's one of his models that he was basing his work on, like his network of election offices or like campaign offices and you know the glad handing and the meeting with with actual voters but yeah so this is all to say if you're not part of that campaign or that group or that worldview that some people see as very closed i think it could not make sense i know it doesn't make sense to a lot of americans americans kept asking me you know why did he go back if he knew he was going to jail or why did he go back if he knew he was going to jail and they could probably try to kill him and I two people inside it makes perfect sense like there was absolutely no other choice and they believe that he will be president and that you know I guess Mandela like he will go through this period of official excoriation and imprisonment to get to the promised land and I think Navalny is like very I think like I talk to people who work for Navalny who are more junior and this, this also didn't make it into the piece, but a lot of them told me that Navalny is an, a very important figure. You know, she just, she's not an employee of Afbaka, which now doesn't exist. She's not an employee in any way. She doesn't participate in the investigations, but she's a very important symbol for all of them. So one scene that didn't make it into the piece is right before the January protests when Alexei was just arrested and all of Moscow came out or all of Russia came out to demand his release from prison. Everybody who works for Efbeka becomes, this has become a ritual. They go and they get their power of attorney signed and they line up their plans for the inevitable case in which they get imprisoned at the protest. And they all just went from the office of Efbeka to the notary, which is like down the street. And they're there and yeah, yeah, like this whole group of young staffers who are on their teens and 20s and they're scared they're nervous like their boss has almost been killed they're really scared in walks Yulia because they live right near the FK offices and she walks in for the same thing to get a power of attorney notarized for the inevitable you know getting detained and imprisoned and they see that she's like super chipper and she talks to them and she's really beat and, you know, her husband's in jail and he nearly died and she's still smiling and talking to them and is very firm in her motivation and the justice of her cause. And they're like, well, and they all kind of look at each other and are like, she can be this cheerful in the face of the shitstorm that she's facing, then we 
most certainly can do this as well. And I heard uh, several stories like that where she's a very important symbol of internally of perseverance and uh, stoicism and kind of staying on the path no matter what. A lot of the, the Navalny team's campaign style is, if not modeled on, then at least reminiscent of the way it happens in the West. A lot of going to the people, putting your family out there. You know, you, you're comparing the mentality to what like drives a lot of American campaigners. Do you think that that is like a winning strategy in Russia? I mean, obviously, it hasn't won yet. The movement is kind of decimated. He's in jail. But it's, you know, there's maybe he's Mandela and it will work. But what's your reading of it? Like, when you see Navalny using Western-style politics, and when you see that, you're like, oh, wow, this is... I mean, obviously, it's exciting because it's different. But is it, like, is it tragic? This is, like, another... This is related to another question of, like, pragmatism versus the idealism in the Navalny family. When I see that, like, my reading of it is, like, this is this story is a tragedy because the idealism is what's going to lead them into this, like, what happened earlier this year, which is Navalny's in jail for the foreseeable future, probably. I know his term is not endless, but it will likely be extended. And the movement's been totally decimated. People are in jail. People are, have fled abroad. Like, they lost. That's like how it looks to me right now. And so in that sense, it's a tragedy, I think. But you've, you've spent time around them. Grozev says that they, there's an infectious feeling when you're around them. Did you feel infected? Is this not a tragedy? Is this we're still in the throes of like a great drama or like what's in terms of the genre, like to the dramatic genre? So how do you think about this? I think it's we don't know yet what kind of story it is because it this story isn't over. And whatever story, whatever genre it ends up being there will definitely be tragic elements of it i think that once it's written it'll be like he goes to jail dot 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 okay now he's out or if it were a play he goes to jail there are some protests curtain drop intermission and then the curtain goes up after intermission it's 15 years later putin is dead now finally is out of jail and he's wiser and older whatever <laughs> i see <laughs> I, I don't know i'm just saying like the point is we don't know i think that Anybody who knows Russian history knows that it's never over till it's over. So if you look at the period, for example, between 1905 and 1917, it's 12 years, and it really looked like they had lost. Everybody was in jail, everybody was, or abroad, and even abroad, the Akhrana, the like predecessor to the, although much less brutal predecessor to the, FSB, KGB, whatever, was tracking them abroad, was constantly busted. Like, they, they they had to go underground. The revolutionaries had to go underground. They were constantly busted with, like, illegal printing presses, which was, right, like, the equivalent of the YouTube studio that keeps getting busted and the equipment getting seized. And it certainly looks like they've lost. And the Tsar has increased his grip on power. And... Nobody cares about the socialists. And then, you know, we know the rest, right? That's not how it ended. On the other hand, it could end very differently this time and that, God forbid, something happens to Navalny in jail, he never leaves jail. And unfortunately for Russia, it seems to need a kind of charismatic leader, either the Vorst or the anti-Vorst. And I think Navalny is very much a Vorst, you know, in the way he runs things. In terms of 
Whether it works or not, we don't know. It's kind of not a fair playing field. Would the vast majority of Russians accept Yulia Navalny if they saw her every day on their television screens? Maybe, but we don't know. On the other hand, there's the example again of Raisa Gorbachev, who was hated by Soviets. I mean, fucking hate. They loathed her, especially the women. And they thought that she intruded and meddled and it was in her place. And because she was constantly with Gorbachev, they were holding hands everywhere. It was this very Western model that Soviets suddenly saw, right? It w- they, they were used to seeing, and I think there are very ma- many parallels here. They were used to seeing this kind of geriatric male politics is geriatric and male. And then comes along relatively young Gorbachev and a young Raisa. And they're holding hands and they're everywhere together. And he clearly consults her and they clearly love each other and respect each other. And this is all out there for public display. And Soviets hated it. Hated it. And what would a 2021 list of memorable articles be without an investigative report about the coronavirus pandemic? It's still with us, folks. Throughout the year, the good people at the Moscow Times have produced some of the best journalism on this subject. But one report stands out above the rest. A royal markup, how an Emirati sheikh resells millions of Russian vaccines to the developing world. By Pyotr Sauer, Jake Cordell, and Felix Light. Published on July 9th, 2021, in the Moscow Times. I asked Pyotr Sauer to tell me what he could about how he and his colleagues discovered that the maker of Russia's flagship coronavirus, Sputnik V, trusted a random wheeler and dealer in the Middle East with reselling this crucial drug to the developing world. We really wanted to do a vaccine diplomacy story. You know, it was at the time when Russia was really bragging about its vaccine diplomacy, saying that hundreds of countries are accepting Sputnik now and they're importing Sputnik. But we were always quite skeptical of, of Russia's efforts and real intentions to export Sputnik. So then I was actually just going through local news, local reports, and stumbled upon this random report of how Sputnik was exported through a, a murky middleman in Ghana. Where did you, where did you see that report? Do you remember? Uh, just local Ghanese media. It was quite funny. It was written in Pigeon English, I guess. Uh, it was on the BBC Africa monitor. So I, was just, I saw that and I thought it was very strange. I thought it was strange that no one has really noticed this before. And I couldn't believe that it was only Ghana that, that was doing this. This Why would this murky middleman, this sheikh in Abu Dhabi, would only export vaccines to Ghana? So then I started really, you know, looking into... If this could be happening in other places, we managed to talk to start to talk to a guy uh, who did it, who imported it to Lebanon. He was another middleman through the sheikh. And then from there, we found other countries. We found Kenya, we found Pakistan, we found Guyana. So, you know, three, three continents across the world, a very, very strange collection of countries. But uh, it really started from this one local report in Ghana. What, what are the possible explanations for why the, the Russian Direct Investment Fund would grant the exclusive resale rights for Sputnik V in the developing world to this Abu Dhabi-based company? Like, what are the, what are the possible? Oh, that's a very good question uh, because the reputational risks were enormous and, and they turned out to be big because this, this middleman was reselling the vaccine 
for twice the price. Russian direct investment fund has really presented itself as selling the Sputnik for all to the whole world for $9.95 uh, per dose. That's what they were selling to Hungary, to Slovakia. And then this guy was selling one dose for $19.90 and to Guyana even for $24. So that's more than twice the price. Twice the price in places where that's presumably even more unaffordable. Or yeah, whatever, exactly, right? yeah. exactly. So he was making millions. And the question really is, and that's, I think, the one thing we didn't really manage to really pin down because the Russian Direct Investment Fund, I think as many my colleagues have also noticed, uh, they're very hard to talk to. They'll only talk to you if they want to. They usually just send out these sort of pre-written statements. No one really leaks within the Russian Direct Investment Fund. It's very tightly sealed organization. So we couldn't really show who was making the money, whether there was sort of a kickback happening between the Russian Direct Investment Fund and the Sheikh. Uh, we do know obviously that Russia and Abu Dhabi uh, and Dubai, they've been nurturing ties. The Russian Direct Investment Fund produces vaccines in Abu Dhabi, Sputnik vaccines. So, you know, this could have been sort of a, a geopolitical thing where the Sheikh sort of was also talking up his connections, saying, you know, if you give me this license, I think this would be great for our cooperation between, you know, Russia and, and the United Emirates, but it could also be just a more practical corruption scandal where someone in the Russian Direct Investment Fund, whether it's Dmitriev or more likely someone below that, was just making some money of it uh, and thought that he'd be able to do it without uh, people noticing. Uh, and this is sort of also very telling of Russia's vaccine diplomacy. In the end, much of the vaccines were never delivered because Russia, as we know, they've had problems producing lots of vaccines. It was over-promising and under-delivering. We've seen that with Argentina as well, with the sort of their most important, really, vaccine importer, where they couldn't produce enough of the second dose. So in the end, the Sheikh was, had to pay back the money that he made, I think three and a half million, I think three and a half million dollars. He had to pay back to Ghana just because the vaccines never arrived. So this also shows that this Sheikh, he wasn't even on the priority list of, of Sputnik pr producers. You know, they must have promised him something. And in the end, they needed the vaccines for, for domestic consumption, needed the vaccine for sort of their more trusted official partners like Argentina. And then he was lower uh, in the hierarchy. And in the end, he didn't even manage to get the vaccine that he promised to sell. Looking back at this story five years from now, is that the takeaway that you, th you hope readers have if they remember it? Is that like, that was a, this is a story of how Russian corruption works? Or is there, what's the legacy you'd like this story to have? Corruption, I think this is a story where Russian scientists actually did a really good job, but the politicians and the sort of people close to Kremlin kind of messed it up for the scientists because it's not just obviously with what we did but we've seen it in other instances where the, russia hasn't provided enough documentation for example of sputnik they've over promised make deals they couldn't deliver on and in the end sort of sputnik v has started off as this sort of promising beautiful vaccine for all as the russian direct investment fund marketed it turned out to be a, a big flop really and the uh, export is nothing compared to, to what we've seen uh, with Chinese exports, Pfizer, Moderna, all these other vaccines. At the time of writing, Arugulf, which is the company of the Sheikh, was also in talks with South Africa and Indonesia. So two major countries. And it would have been interesting if this story wouldn't have come out, if those deals would have come through, because I think those, those are multi-million deals that, that I think would have even brought more attention to this. And uh, sort of a slight anecdote where, you know, this is something we'd like to find out. I don't know if we will, but there is a Steven Seagal angle to the story. Oh, yeah. Let's have that, please. Please. So if there is, you know, in the in the whole chain of middlemen in this, you know, you have the main middleman, the Sheikh. Close middleman was a guy called Peter Hansen, this uh, Norwegian wheeler dealer, very sketchy, wanted in Norway, lives in Dubai, sort of as sketchy as you get. And he is 
best friend, he's one of the best friends of Steven Seagal. Lots of pictures of them together. And he, in one leaked audio, published in a Norwegian article that focused really on more on Seagal. Uh, he said that Steven and I are making so much money off this deal in Ghana. No way to prove it. Hansen didn't want to talk to us. Obviously, Seagal didn't want to talk to us, but it's just a funny anecdote. Just to show how, how ridiculous Russia can be sometimes. So in theory, he could have been like star power for some like greasing some kind of deal. So yeah, exactly. So because the Sheikh knows Seagal as well, there are pictures of them together. We didn't include this in our investigation because it's just, you really have to have a you know, strong evidence to link this, but the Seagal could have been sort of another middleman between the Sheikh and the Russian Direct Investment Fund, given the the, the political connection Seagal has in Russia. And uh, you know. It's amazing how the, the whole deal seems like so based on I know a guy. You call, the, you call, you call RDIF asking to buy vaccines and they're like, there's this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think what happened really was this Shaikh said, listen, I, I know these countries, give me the license. This is a good for cooperation between our two countries. I'll do all the logistics. Don't worry about it. I'll bring them. There's this amazing picture that we had on, on the side of the Sheikh flying to Guyana, being met by the prime minister of Guyana. So, so if he really must have talked up his political connections with those countries and also with the Abu Dhabi royalty. And that must have play, played a difference here where the Russian direct investment thought, okay, sure, go for it, have it. The last article we're reviewing on this episode affected me personally the most. As some of you out there might already know, my third and fourth children, twins, were born more than three months premature this June, and they both spent more than 100 days in the NICU. Relative to the people in this next story, it was a brief exposure to the life and death stakes that exist in the everyday lives of parents and their children in Russia dealing with untreated pain. The final article on our 2021 list is Russia has an opioid crisis too, one of untreated pain, by Maria Danilova, published on September 22nd, 2021, in Vice. I asked Maria how she started working on such a difficult, sometimes almost impossible to stomach subject. She told me that the issue has been on her mind for years. I'm somebody who really doesn't like pain. So I, you know, the theme of, of pain relief in Russia and before that in Ukraine when I was there for EP, this is something that I've been, you know, following and paying attention to. And of course, like Nyuta Federmeser is somebody who is like, you know, a really amazing, inspiring woman. And she's, she's been doing this, this great work. And yeah, Lida runs a, a pediatric hospice in Moscow. So I've long wanted to do the story, but it's very hard to these days to sell a story uh, like a Russia story to a long-form publication that is not that is not obviously political. You know, like uh, people love Putin and Kremlin stories. This one was, you know, a harder sell, but I think the way I was able to get editors interested is because it's the reverse of what is happening in the U.S. Here it's very easy to get, to get uh, you know, pain relief and a prescription for opioids. So this is the angle that I took when I was pitching the story and uh, Vice liked the idea. And I also, what helped me, I had a grant 
from NYU for long-form reporting. So I was able to pay for my travel and staying there. And uh, that really helped. And what kind of fieldwork was involved here? Because it's clear that you're you're witnessing a lot of this firsthand, all the descriptive writing that's in the story. Where did you go? So we spent several days at the hospice in, in Moscow, at Linda's hospice. Who's we? Is you, you had a photographer with you? Or? Yes, we have a photo- I had a photographer, Alexander Zimlinchenko Jr. We spent several days at, at the hospice. I interviewed a bunch of experts. I was, it took me a while because because at, at Lydia's hospice, you, you kind of have like the good side of, of, the, of the equation, right? Children who are being helped, children who are not in pain. But the whole premise of the story that this is more of an outlier, an exception what Lida's doing. So it took us a while to find like a bad example. And then finally, I uh, met this this mother, Anastasia Garitka, Angelina's mother, and she lives in Krasnodar. And by the time we found her, I had already left Russia because I was there only for a couple of weeks. And uh, so Alexander flew to Krasnodar and um, he spent, I think, a day or a couple of days there with her, taking photos, just kind of uh, observing, witnessing her life. And then I did a bunch of interviews with her afterwards. From what I, I gather, the article itself, or perhaps it was the phone calls that you made, inquiries that you made with local officials while you're writing this or researching it, it then seems, it then that in conjunction with some other events leads to pressure actually getting her the, the medicine that she wanted. Right. So yeah, when, when I started talking to health officials there, it was like, oh, everything's fine, everything's under control, like your standard, you know official statement we're doing all we can and I was like how can you be doing all you can if, if the child is screaming in pain and then yeah we started I started sending you know requests for comments to you know health officials and the health ministry and the local polyclinic and and I, I guess the officials really started paying attention to this and so I I started consulting and kind of you know seeking comment from experienced doctors in Moscow who deal with these kinds of patients and they were able to get in touch with local doctors and like together they got the ball rolling. How does it feel to have played a role? I mean, like you didn't just write a pretty story, you actually helped somebody. Is that something that happens a lot with with your journalism or was this like a unique experience or? I mean, with this kind of like tangible effect, it it really felt like it was was a powerful feeling because, you know, this is the one family, this is the one girl that that I was actually able to help at least somewhat. Does does that change the way you think about your own job? Because if I'm not mistaken, was it Lydia in the story who started out, she studied at Moscow State doing journalism and then realized that it's, it, she felt she was more fulfilled doing charity work than reporting on charity work. You have now re- reported on charity work. How do you feel? I mean, I also sometimes ask myself this, this question, you know, is, am I really doing enough? Should I maybe be on, on like Lydia's side, like actually helping patients every day as opposed to like writing, you know, one story, I don't know, a year about this. But I think like we, we each of us has a role to play. And I think my role was also important, n- not just in helping that, that family, but also like in, in telling, in telling the story and in getting people aware about this and maybe maybe we'll push some change down the line. One of the things that comes up in the story, and I imagine this is this was both this is both like a necessary piece of the story, but it's also it probably helps tie it into things that resonate with a wider audience is this notion of ethical compromise that people have to mm-hmm. make. We see mm-hmm. it with Lydia, we see it with people like Dr. Liza, mm-hmm. uh, Chilpan Helmatova, even Dmitry Muratov more recently with the Nobel Peace Prize. And, you know, how he's like, these guys are, you know, leading civic figures, doing lots of good, but they're also criticized, sometimes quite severely, in the, like, intelligentsia, the Tosovka, or, or 
Well, I mean, sometimes even internationally, right? Because if you could find a picture of somebody receiving an award from Putin and put tweet that, oh boy, you've, you've just canceled them, haven't you? So it's this is like a subject that comes up with a lot of characters who are working in the system somehow, but do, but doing undeniably good and possibly more good than any anybody outside the system. This is like a, a kind of perennial argument, and you you've mentioned this. That this is like something that haunts the intelligentsia and so on, and even. Even Manyaeva in the stories, she's, she goes to protests and she's researching, is this going to be a, a threat to the work she's doing? How does she, And she finds legal reasons that she can't be arrested and so on. So she's, she's grappling with this absolutely. So it's not just academic. When you, when you write a story like this, how much of it do you decide you're going to devote to this kind of like higher politics, to these larger ethical questions? How do you kind of determine what's the right amount of what? I think that moral dilemma that all these these activists um, and reformers face, I think it's really like part of their job, part of their life. I don't think you can tell the story, tell their story with, without touching on this. But but I, I also think that, um, you know, who are we to judge? And and maybe like, maybe if we do the same, the same kind of amazing work that really helps people, then maybe we'll be in a position to argue and, you know, but being, uh, you know, this, you know, Facebook army of, of critics, obviously these people are doing an amazing job and it's not easy for them. This, this compromise that they struggle with is, is not easy. It's not something they would want to have. But I think Nyuta has, you know, obviously she gets asked this question uh, a lot. And I know there have been times when she was, I don't know, when she was frustrated because, you know, this is like the 10th time she's asked this question. But I mean, yeah, her answer is that uh, I'm doing this. I want to help children. I want to help help Russians in pain. And uh, it's not, I mean, she's not doing it for her own enrichment or for her own. She's not, it's a very difficult job that she's doing. And uh, in one interview, she says that the amount of pain that she like handles and, and takes upon herself daily is just, is just sometimes too much. So how can like who are we to judge her? I mean, she's not she's not living in like a five star hotel and kind of enjoying herself. I mean, she's really like it's really hard both you know physically and emotionally. In the article, you write that many Russians see hardship as a natural part of being alive, and and you know like it's endurance. You need to, it needs to be a skill that you develop, and that's that kind of like stoicism is what fuels a lot of the. It's, not, it's it's interesting because it's not even necessarily indifference to pain. It, there's a like you have people talking to their doctors and saying, "Yeah, you're in pain, like you're dying." Yeah, well, what exactly? Like, what did you expect? You have cancer. Yeah, like you're this. Yeah, like that's right. Be in pain. That's part of it. Exactly. On one hand, it's like those lines are kind of like, "Wow, like <laughs> that's a that's quite a perspective." Do you think that that's changing? Because the the story, the arc of your story, does seem to be that. That you know the things are improving for some of these characters. I mean, I think it is. I think editors are changing, and I think it's become more acceptable to talk about pain and and to to say that pain is is not okay and that you should not be suffering and that you should be helped. I think we're seeing a, a change in in attitude, and I think also in in healthcare. I think doc- doctors bit by bit are so changing the way they communicate with patients. Again, it used to be like, well, you know, of course, like Mr. Ivanov, what did you expect? Like, you're sick. Yeah, of course, like pain is part of being sick. And I think now increasingly, like doctors are expected to empathize and uh, uh, and just be nice and just feel sorry. I mean, not not. I, I guess doctors cannot like feel sorry and really be invested in every single patient because that they're gonna they're gonna burn out very soon. But at least like acknowledge that your patient is in pain and needs needs help and needs acknowledgement.
Those are nine articles about Russia, written in English by journalists in 2021, that stand out. But many of you out there are like Lyubov Sobol, lovable nerds who prefer whole books. So as not to leave you in the cold, The Naked Pravda reached out to historian Sean Guillory of the SRB podcast for the five Russia books that resonated with him most this year. The first one on my list is Cold War Correspondence, Soviet and American Reporters on the Ideological Front Lines by Dina Feinberg. This is a wonderful book. It's about looking at a comparison about how American journalists from 1945 to the collapse of the Soviet Union reported on the Soviet Union and uh, Soviet journalists reporting on the United States. And she really goes through and looks at how a lot of the a lot of reporting falls into particular tropes. For example, one of the things that American journalists are a lot of it is about trying to get a sense of how viable is the Soviet system? Is it going to collapse? Basically, a lot of the stuff she talks about is American journalists based on trying to understand the Soviet system through their own kind of interest and eyes. So there's lots of emphasis on consumerism. Right. There's a lot of reporting on like, okay, you want to understand Soviet society. You have to look out, look and and talk about regular people who qualifies as a regular person. Well, that's the thing, right? Journalists, they, they, they encounter people on the streets, but the idea of it is, is that if officialdom is always trying to, it's all based in this idea of Potomkin village, trying to hide Soviet reality. So the only way you can find real Soviet life is to talk to whatever people shopping, stuff like this. So there's like an assumption that there's some kind of inner truth to regular people. Is there an assessment of what conclusions the American journalists arrived at? Did they decide just as just before the whole thing collapsed that, hey, this- nobody had that kind of clairvoyance. <laughs> no, but I mean, the, the thing is, is like the reporting, you know, like a person like Hendrick Smith, right? The reporting is very, very good, but there's a kind of the, the questions that journalists are engaging with, they fall into certain types of tropes that are repeated. Like one is the idea of Russia as a hidden country is one uh, that has to be revealed. Because of the Iron Curtain? Yeah, but, it, but honestly, like this is the whole idea of Russia as a mystery that needs to be solved. It's, you know, trying to explain to American readers like what this strange place is, but it's mostly about trying to unlock or reveal an inner truth uh, about that place. And you can think of like the Churchill quote, right? Of Russia as an enigma. Like that's a, that's a constantly, and it, it, it continues to be used to today. So she really, this book, at least on, from American journalists, you can see how a lot of, even the reporting today are based in the same ideas. Like Russia, my favorite one is this idea of Russia in a constant state of becoming and the sense that it's going somewhere. <laughs> it's not, it's just not in a state of being. So it's either resurgent or it's collapsing or it's right. It's, it doesn't, we, and we don't talk about say, I don't know, the United States as it just is. So it's this kind of continual effort to diagnose what the, where is Russia quote unquote going? Does the book offer any kind of, and, and why that is like, is it wishful thinking on Americans part that this geopolitical adversary it's just got the wrong idea about everything and they're going to come around or is it that there's, you know, the Russians have bad blood and they're perpetually getting worse or what's the like, is there? Well, it, it vacillates, <laughs> right? It's, it vacillates. I mean, this is what's really interesting about it because it, it has these inner contradictions that never can seem to be resolved. 
So on the one hand, you have, well, Russia's Russians like, you know, the strong hand. And then there's Russians are going to become like us. Mm -hmm. And you can see this and it, it corresponds with, with American foreign relations. So during periods in which, uh, like then take the 19, like 1980s and perestroika in the 1990s, right? It's this idea of, oh, finally they're going to become basically little Americans. And then when relations go bad, then it swings to, well, Russians, they like authoritarianism or something like this, right? Or Russia's, it's just like Russia has always been since the 15th century. So it's, it really, all of these ideas go into framing the type of reporting that's done on the American side. What about on the, the Soviet side? And the Soviet side is actually really fascinating because again, one, she shows that, I mean, when we think of like Soviet journalism, we're thinking, oh, it's just all propaganda. And what it is, is actually, they're very serious, these journalists who are based in the United States, but their access is limited. I mean, there's access limited, of course, on the American side too, but they are, of course, seeing things through a, an ideological framework as well. So this is why they're, they're focusing also on like, when is the revolution going to happen in the United States? When is social conditions getting to a certain point? But what's really interesting about the Soviet side too, is they have a different, their writing isn't, is more literary. This is one of the things I found really fascinating. It's not based in this, this idea that you have in America of objectivity. So I, I have been reading some of the reporting on the civil rights movement, for example, and it's very much more literary. It's much more like observational than based in like, I'm going to uncover the facts of a situation. So it's like, is a lot of like descriptive long read stuff then, or? Yeah. A lot of it is descriptive long reads. A lot of it is in this feloton tradition, the correspondents that are in America, right. That are based that are traveling around. They're following the same kind of thing where they want to talk to quote unquote, regular Americans and get at the heart of what is America to some extent. But for me, I just didn't know anything about Soviet journalists and actually Soviet journalists reporting from the United States. I thought that was really fascinating. Next book I have is uh, Utopia's Discontents, Russian Emigres and the Quest for Freedom from 18, the 1830s to 1930s by Faith Hillis. And I just like this book because it dealt with um, Russian emig revolutionary emigres in exile in like Austria and Switzerland and London and things like this. What I really loved about it is that it really made them human. And the sense of their personal relationships with one another, the scandals, you know, most books on the Russian revolutionary movement is about ideology. And this is just about the fact that they're exiles and they can't make a living, that they scrape by, that they have these amazing networks of immigrants, say in the Russian case, that are multi-ethnic but their lingua franca is Russian in this like Russian colony almost. But you also have Zionists and they all intermingle in many respects and they all intermarry. So I, I found just the humanness of portraying the Russian revolutionary movement that wasn't based on like the intricacies of who said what and whatever ideological tract versus what. I, I thought it was it was an incredibly human story. When where are these where are these immigrants based? They're all over Europe? They're a lot in France, in in Switzerland, in London. So they return to Russia and 
foment revolution is that so they're exiled right and they're you know thrown out of russia or they have to leave and they also set up like cafes for example there were bolshevik cafes they were like menshevik cafes and so you get all of this identity stuff and and of course that comes with scandals like oh you can't talk to that person because of x and the archival records for this are like diaries or how did people know? diaries memoirs informant reports informant reports good yeah 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 so it's it to me it like it gave a life to that that movement and of course all of these kind of they collapse too because of the scandal and the intrigue and the inner infighting as well they go back right and then they really harden their positions they they also have mass networks of smuggling literature into russia so it's also like the people on the the ground is an interesting component as well um, but she only deals with the exiles i wonder if, i know this is a historical book but just since my mind's more in current events like the parallels between this and like the Navalny movement and the, you know, past remnants. I don't know, Kasparov, I don't know if he represents a movement per se, but definitely Navalny. And like how all of his generals have been forced to exile now. And I wonder if like some of the patterns there are repeating or will repeat. It's possible. I mean, I, I, it also connected to me just because I see this amongst political movements all the time that where it's, we're literally like, for my interpretation of the takeaway from this book is that a lot of stuff is just personal. A lot of the like who, where you are, what makes you say a Bolshevik? You know, I remember she, Faith points out that masculinity and patriarchy were really important to being a Bolshevik. And maybe they, they were softer on, the others were softer. She had this really great anecdote about Lenin and how Lenin would, uh, you know, he'd have, they'd be at a cafe him and his his guys and only lenin could drink beer and everyone else had to drink tea oh man what a what a jerk or like how all of in the in the bolshevik movement the women were relegated to secretaries right they didn't have any prominent there are no prominent bolshevik women really in the in the revolutionary movement so it was that it was a very kind of and their their family relationships are also apparently quite patriarchal as well but i just like the the move to this politics, it, it's a reminder that these people were human beings and not just like these ideological machines. The next book is the Navalny book, uh, Navalny, Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future by Jan Mati Dalbom, Morvan Lauet, and Ben Noble. I know this is a book that you read, so maybe you might have more insight than me. The, the biggest thing I remember about the book, and I was just walking the dog the other day, and for some reason, this, was, this came to my mind. I don't know why. But there's no Navalny signs in my neighborhood, I assure you. But I was thinking to myself how, like, the, one of the common criticisms of Navalny by the Russian authorities and by people that parrot what they say is that Navalny, this is kind of unique to domestic rhetoric. I don't think foreign critics of Navalny will typically just talk about, you know, his racism and so on. That's pretty much the, that's what you hear. Maybe the, to some degree that he won't give back Crimea or something. But the book argues that the criticism is often made that, you know, he's like manipulating the youth and manipulating people in general, like bringing them out in a harm's way. And like, I mean, they used, they used to say, well, he was, you know, sitting comfortably somewhere else, but that's clearly not the case anymore. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that he's like, his people are manipulating everybody. And the, one of the findings of this book was that he's not even that popular, and but they're happy to rally to him because he's unique in his kind of institutional or organizational tools 
and that he, I mean, he's also clearly unique in his like bravery of standing up to the regime. And so he's somebody they can get behind as a kind of battering ram to the political monopoly of United Russia or to Putin. And like, they're using him. Like, it's always fun to be able to flip like a common, you know, saying on its head. And they've, they absolutely did that in this book. And I also, I, I particularly like that finding because it's not, it's not very flattering to Navalny. And for the most part, what you read about in English about Navalny is flattering insofar as he's, he's an undeniably brave person and like it'd be wrong to not emphasize that, but that's usually what you hear. And so to hear that Russian authorities' talking points are wrong, but they're also something that Navalny's people would certainly not want you to believe. I think that's fun. I like that. No, I like the, the personal Navalny conclusion they made. People who are out in the country, you know, in the provinces, for example, who are involved in politics. Navalny is this, he's a cipher, right? He, he's a, he has this ability to, he, he represents for people out there and they have their own interpretation of it, but he does represent like a, a way to crystallize their dissatisfaction. Yeah. He's like a personification of against all. Yes, exactly. And that, and that's, you know, and that's, I think how a lot of these, you know, movements, it, particularly if they're really around one individual figure, they point, like you said, they point out like there's people who don't really like Navalny's politics, but at this stage in the game, you know, he is a mobilizing force. He inspires people. Yeah. Oh, he's a good, he's a good speaker. He's got like all the good media stuff. And the other reason why I really like that angle too, because, and this is something that's missing in a lot of say journalism or even in academic assessments of Russian politics, it gives these people agency on the ground. Well, just like it gives them agency, but it's Let's not get carried away. It's not like suggesting that they're really wielding a whole lot of power. It's more like a weapons of the week kind of situation. Yeah. And and two, I think in, in terms of like a positive development, at least in my personal view, like this idea that one of the problems of Russian, I don't want to call it democracy anymore, but whatever the politics of Russia are today. Voting. Let's just call it voting. voting. Or yeah, but it needs people to actually believe in politics as a viable thing to participate in. If you want democracy to develop, it's not going to be done by, you know, a Navalny coming in. It's going to be of these people on the ground building, working, doing things according to the conditions of their locality, for example. This is how it how it develops. Because I think, and if I remember correctly how the, the book says, like if Navalny, if there was a, you know, revolution or some sort of major political change, Navalny might not even be one of the main players. I think he might be de facto because of his, the largesse of his name and his bravery and all those individual qualities. But, you know, that quote, that movement that has coalesced around him would fracture. My next book is Flowers Through Concrete Explorations in Soviet Hippie Land by Yuliana First. That's a good title. It is a good title. It's an excellent book. First and foremost, because I didn't know there were hippies in the Soviet Union. Uh, that was a new thing for me. But what, what I really, one of the takeaways that she had was, and I found this incredibly fascinating, that Soviet hippie culture was possible because of Soviet institutions. So one of the things that in, in, in Soviet culture in the Soviet Union, and even in post-Soviet, it didn't become commodified. So it actually lasted. You still have Soviet hippies. There was no 
I want to buy the World of Coke campaign. <laughs> exactly. And I found that incredibly fascinating the fact that the Soviet system per- prevented it from, because there was no commodification of the culture and it only actually fell apart in the 1990s. Oops. <laughs> I, I find this, a lot of this work in the late, in the 70s, 60s and 70s and into the 80s, one of the common themes I'm seeing amongst scholars who are now working on the late socialist period is, is the relationship between the system and the people within it and how the system in interesting ways allows people to develop their own subcultures. And the other thing too, within, again, this goes to the, a lot of the work that's being done on the 60s and 70s now by historians is that we have a tendency, like the old way to look at, say, hippies, for example, would be, okay, you have hippies and you have the Soviet state and they're antagonistic. Right. One and it's and in hippie, the subculture of hippiedom is inherently rejecting the Soviet system across the board. Now, yes, there's a lot of horrible repression of of these people in terms of psychological institutions and prison and all of this stuff. There's no doubt there. But what's really interesting is that their understanding of themselves as hippies, even if they're like major Beatles fans, which a lot of them are, of course, and fascinated with the West their worldview isn't so far outside the boundaries of Soviet ideology. Anti-imperialism kind of stuff, you mean? Or so, like- for example, one of the pivotal moments is, I think it's 1971 or 1972, I forget, but there's a demonstration of like 300 of these hippies against the Vietnam War. And at first, this the Soviet KGB doesn't know what to do with these people and they're kind of like hands off. And they actually like, the, the demonstration gets sanctioned by the Moscow Soviet, the, it becomes a problem because they're basically their anti-war message, anti-Vietnam message is consistent with the Soviet position. But what gets them in the trouble is they start having slogans that aren't necessarily fall into respectable Soviet politics. <laughs> for the, Do you remember any, any examples? Or I can't remember any examples. The other thing too is that now the police actually see a crowd of these people and see what they look like. Yeah, I imagine right they're, they're looking all funny. <laughs> that's another thing. Yeah, and that's just, inherently that's just that's just I would, make, I would imagine that just worries them. <laughs> like these, these these guys look weird. <laughs> but all of this this scholarship on the late Soviet period is just really great because they're also pointing out too is they're questioning this notion of stagnation. You find through all of this work that Soviet society was far more dynamic than we tend to assume. My last book pretty much follows along those lines. It's uh, The Things of Life, Materiality in Late Soviet Russia by Alexei Gulabyov. He looks at things like model building, you know, like airplane models and tanks, as we used to, at least I did as a kid for a while. As a hobby or as like industrial prep or something? As hobbies. How the hell does he find data on that? He did a lot of interviews. He also looked in like church preservation movement, the wooden church preservation movement in the, in the 70s, um, bodybuilding, like these guys who like develop like bodybuilding gyms and like garages and stuff. Is there a common, is there a common thread here? Yeah. The common thread is that the relationship between how the, the people's relationship between things changes or has an influence on their their understanding of themselves and it it just was a, a really good way to illustrate how again the plurality of soviet life and also how people's through their engagement with like wood plastic metal were able to form like different cultures and different ways of being so for instance the people that work with wood or 
like what 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 what's the they then what <laughs> so the, their church like the, the pre- preserve the churches these wooden orthodox churches they they narrate like a history of russianness for example through their engagement with preservation something like this okay okay so those people tend to see more continuity in like russian culture or something or this is a very this is a cool concept i really like it the nature of the hobby it influences like the way they conceive of of society or their russianness or their place in history yeah society their historical imagination their place in it their their self-identity okay gotcha You've been listening to The Naked Prophet, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we reviewed some of the most original, significant reporting on Russia in English throughout 2021. You also heard from the authors of three of these stories. Julia Yoffa discussed her profile of Yulia Navalnaya. Pyotr Sauer explained how he helped blow the lid on Russia's shady resale deals for the Sputnik V vaccine in the developing world. And Maria Danilova broke down Russia's opioid crisis of untreated pain. Finally, we got historian Sean Guillory's list of the five academic books about Russia that he enjoyed most this year. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. And can't stress this enough. If you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at support.meduza.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we'll take whatever you can spare, of course. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening, and come back soon.